13th century, with the Mongol hordes closing in on Damascus, one of the most controversial figures in Islamic doctrine would come to prominence. He propounded a doctrine of jihad that would be influential even up to our present day. Scholars debate how much influence he really had in his own time. But just as some have blamed al-Ghazali for the demise of Islamic science, many blame Ibn Taymiyyah for the radicalization of Islam. What was the truth of this man, his doctrine, and his influence? Well, that is our subject today, so please stay tuned. Okay, welcome back. Today we're going to talk about one of those figures who is often blamed for the change in Islam in terms of, quote, what went wrong. In fact, one writer out there lumps Ibn Taymiyyah and Al-Ghazali together as responsible for the supposed decline of Islam. Well, that again is a very heavy charge to lay on anyone. So, who was this person? Ibn Taymiyyah was born in 1263 in the city of Haran, which is now on the border between Syria and Turkey. But he had to flee that city when it was attacked and destroyed by the Mongols. And this would be, as you can imagine, a very formative influence in his life. In fact, fleeing from and resisting the Mongols would be major themes in all of Ibn Taymiyyah's life. Now, his family was already made up of well-known Hanbali jurists, and his father, after fleeing to Damascus, took up a position as the head of an important mosque in Damascus. Now, as we mentioned way back in an earlier episode, of the four Sunni schools of law, Hanbali was, and still is, seen as the most conservative. It was their founder, Ibn Hanbal, if you remember, who clashed with the rationalist Mutazilites, we haven't mentioned them for a while, and who was tortured and imprisoned by the Inquisition, which really made him sort of a martyr figure for the Hanbalis. Today, the Hanbali is the lineage of the most conservative tendencies in Islam today, such as uh, the Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia. But without a doubt, Ibn Taymiyyah himself is responsible to some degree for furthering this reputation of the Hanbali school as being very conservative. Well, this man spent all of his life as a Hanbali jurist and scholar, but he never held any official government position. And as we'll see, he was often on the outs with the government, although he was useful to them, uh, usually his aversion of Islamic law did not fit very well with what they were practicing. Now, of course, we have to remember that Islam does not have priests, so it's the scholars of the law are often what end up getting called, quote, clergy in the West. We have the, they have the closest thing to that uh, social position. So even though Ibn Taymiyyah did not have an official 
uh, role as a judge, he was known to be very well read and he wrote a lot and he published a lot of legal opinions. And really to the extent that people follow your opinions, that people adhere to them, that's really how much power you have. But in any case, it is still hard even today for historians to figure out how much of a following this guy really had. And part of the reason for that is he was also very active in the military opposition to the Mongols. So sorting out the people who followed him for the military side versus the uh, religious or legal side is kind of hard to determine. But he was definitely very conservative in his opinions, and he was definitely a minority figure. He had a small, devoted circle around him. He was definitely not of the mainstream, because we see how often he clashed with the mainstream. Uh, he was very often brought to trial or uh, forced to do debates, a sort of kind of inquisition, because of his beliefs. So he was usually always on the, the minority side, the opposition side. In any case, Ibn Taymiyyah spent much of his life writing against innovations, or what's known as bidda. And the word in this case does not refer to something good, like a scientific invention. Uh, it re it's referring to deviations from accepted practice. And it's important that Ibn Taymiyyah in particular, but the Hanbali school in general, is very big on following the tradition, the example of the first generation of believers. So when you're accusing someone of innovation, you know, in Silicon Valley, that's a good thing. Uh, it's very clear that Ibn Taymiyyah is not using that as a good thing, and everyone understood that. So things like folk practices that develop really in all religions, which are not strictly in line with doctrine in most of the religions that they appear in, uh, even in uh, Christianity, for example, but definitely in Islam. So let's say if you were to go to parts of Egypt today or Morocco or Syria, particularly in the rural areas, uh, you'll find lots of this, like people visiting the tombs of well-known and respected figures to get blessings. People uh, consulting fortune tellers and seeking protection against bad magic. Now, all of this, I mean, it's pretty much against most any religion, but it is definitely against Islam and particularly against this strict conservative Hanbali interpretation of Islam. But, of course, it's seeping in from the traditional practices. The same thing happens to Christianity in Europe, uh, and it's happening throughout the Middle East. Well, Ibn Taymiyyah saw a lot of this, and unlike many of his peers, he didn't turn a blind eye to it. In fact, it's unlikely he ever turned a blind eye to anything he saw uh, that looked out of place. And this is going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. So, one example. Uh, in 1292, he took his first pilgrimage to Mecca, and when he came back from that, he wrote an entire book on Bidah, during the pilgrimage. And this is sort of the pattern of his life. I mean, if he goes somewhere, he's going to come back with a whole book's worth of stuff that he finds wrong. And remember, of course, the Hajj, for most people, is this life-changing, inspiring spiritual journey. For Ibn Taymiyyah, it's a book worth of material about violations of the law. 
Well, this guy would run foul of the law quite often. He was imprisoned six times for a total of six years. Uh, and this, by the way, uh, builds his reputation uh, for later generations. For the people who follow him, who are almost always in a minority, even today, the fact that he is locked up by the powers that be, by the system, I mean, this only builds his street cred. And remember, this is how Hanbali really gets started. Ibn Hanbal becomes this very, re well, at least respected by his followers uh, because he's locked up uh, for going against the Mu'tazilites. Well, the first time, for example, that he gets locked up is a good example of how his style works. So the year after his Hajj journey, and Ibn Taymiyyah is only 30 years old, so he's a fairly junior uh, fellow, a Christian by the name of Asaf al-Nasrani was accused of insulting the Prophet. And what happened is some people supposedly overheard him curse the prophet, uh, and he, he denied it. But a court sentenced him to death, which is, which is the punishment of that. But the Mamluk rulers at the time really wanted to avoid trouble. They didn't want trouble with the Christians, so they offered him a way out. They said that uh, Nasrani could convert to Islam to get out of the death sentence, you know, basically saying, okay, this is something bad that I did before my conversion, which of course was quite common, we know through the history of Islam, some of the people who would go on to be the greatest allies of the Prophet started out as his enemies. So this is a way for him to get out of it, and he, he did, he took it. Al-Nasrani uh, converts to Islam, and they use this to say that, okay, he got the death sentence, but that was before, and so now he should be pardoned. Well, Ibn Taymiyyah writes an opinion saying that this is unacceptable, saying in his version, anyone insulting the prophet needs to be killed regardless of what happens. Now, the interesting thing is that most of the population of Syria agrees with him on this. Uh, the public outcry is definitely in his favor. But he doesn't stop just writing an opinion, uh, so he leads protests against the governor right up to the governor's palace demanding the death penalty for this guy. And when he doesn't get it, he leads a mob which attacks al-Nasrani and almost kills him. For this, he's put in prison. And so this is really fairly typical of what he does. While he's in prison, though, he writes a book which is entitled, the, the closest English translation of it is, The Sword Drawn Against the Defamer of the Messenger of God, which is, again, he's talking about the duty that you have to draw the sword against anyone who insults the messenger of God. And so this is really a pattern in in his life, we'll see over and over again. He sees something he disagrees with, uh, he writes about it, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't let it go, and even when he's put in prison, he uses this to build his reputation. I mean, that's not his intent. He's just very sincere about what he's writing, but for those who agree with him, this just increases his street cred. Look at this guy, how, how dedicated he is. He doesn't back down. Well, if that sounds like what happened to the founder of the Hanbali school, uh, it's, it is fairly similar. And so this, again, builds his reputation. Now, 
the question may be, why didn't a guy like this end up getting lost to obscurity? I mean, there were a lot of hardline jurists. And in the system of Islam, particularly in Sunni Islam, you know, we don't have like a pope propounding doctrines. We have various legal schools, and even within them we have differences of opinion. And for the most part, there is respect and tolerance for different uh, opinions. Some people are more conservative on certain issues than others. And so why doesn't Ibn Taymiyyah just get lost to history amongst all the other fairly hardline jurists who were kind of out of sync with the ruling authorities, of which there were countless, countless. Well, it's really going to be his relations with the Mongols that will make him what he became and really give him this uh, reputation that transcends the centuries. As we've already seen, he's not afraid of anybody. And sometimes he's too bold for his own safety, but there are times when the Mamluks need someone with guts, someone who can stand up to the enemy, and that's definitely the Mongols. And so he becomes useful. Now, to understand the series of events that are going to really propel Ibn Taymiyyah into uh, history, into lifelong, well, beyond lifelong fame, we have to talk a little bit about the guy on the other side, on the Mongol side. And at this time, it's Ghazan Khan, and he is the leader of the Ilkhanat. And if you remember, we talked about the Mongol Empire being divided into these four khanets, each one with a khan. And the Ilkhanat is the one essentially that took over Persia. Now, we've talked uh, about the previous leaders, we talked about Genghis Khan, then his grandson, the highly destructive Hulagu, who destroyed Baghdad and a whole lot of other places. But you may have lost the trail of the Ilkhan leaders after him. Hulagu dies in our, our last episode. He, we mentioned that. He was replaced by his son, Abaka, who renewed the attacks on the Mamluks. And we talked about him exchanging a lot of trash talk with Baybars, but he didn't get very far. Okay, Ghazan, our fellow today, is the grandson of Abaka. But they had some rapid turnover in leadership uh, between Abaka's death in 1282 and Ghazan's rise in 1295, which doesn't really concern us. They go through a few Khans. But Ghazan takes over, and he will be the next really big, long-lasting one. He's a curious figure himself, and it's really hard to know what to make of him. But what to make of him is really important because the way that Ibn Taymiyyah decides to define him is going to be really his most important impact on Islamic law, or more accurately, the philosophy of jihad. And the reason today that people quote Ibn Taymiyyah, or many would say misquote him when talking about jihad, comes out of this idea of how he decides to characterize Ghazan, the Mongol Khan. So you're probably a bit confused by now, so let's look at why this is an issue. Okay, Ghazan Khan converts to Islam in 1295. But this is a bit of an oversimplification. 
it's definitely not the same situation we saw in the previous episode with the leader of the Golden Horde, Berka Khan. Uh, if you remember, he was a devout Muslim. In fact, so devout that he was furious when his cousin Hulagu destroyed Baghdad, and he actually went to war against the other Khanate. Okay, so there was no question about his conviction. For Ghazan, it seems to be more a matter of convenience. Why do I say that? Okay, because the key figure in his conversion was a Mongol prince by the name of Nauruz, who led a series of rebellions against the Ilkhan during his life. For most of his life, Ghazan and Nauruz would be at war, and eventually uh, he would have Nauruz executed. But alliances shifted frequently, and there are no permanent friends in this environment. I mentioned just a little while earlier that there had been a lot of turmoil and rapid, violent changes of leadership in the Ilkhanate. Well, a big reason that Ghazan is eventually able to take over is because he makes an alliance with Nauruz at a critical point. Now, like I said, it didn't last very long, but for a brief moment, this alliance was critical for Ghazan. Now, Nauruz was a convert to Islam himself, and he seems to have been pretty zealous about it. So as part of the alliance, Ghazan converts to Islam as well. Now, the interesting thing here is that you know, when we think of Mongols, you know, tolerance is not generally the first word that comes to mind in any form. But one area where they were surprisingly easygoing, let's say, I mean, tolerant is not exactly the right word, but it was an area where they just really weren't that, you know, interested was religion. Uh, the Mongols practiced a, a form of shamanism, and they had their own legal code, but they were definitely not on a religious crusade. I mean, they didn't conquer half the world because they were trying to spread shamanism. I mean, they really weren't trying to convert anyone to this. And so even in the Mongol camps, there tended to be Buddhists, Christians, and Muslims. Uh, and when we look at how they treated these people, particularly in the first generations, uh, particularly with Genghis Khan, he was very adept at using them to their advantage. And so he treated some of these leaders pretty well. And the reason was because he could use the Buddhist and Christian leaders to sort of understand the populations that he was going against. This is something we would say today we would call psychological warfare. Okay, Hazan seems to be the same way. I mean, he had Buddhists, Christians, and Muslims working for them, and he rightly ascertained that converting to Islam and showing some support to Islam would help him internally. Remember, we're talking here about a fight for control with the Ilkhanate, and so he does convert. Uh, in fact, even when there was religious violence within his territory, he would usually put a stop to it and preserve the independence of the different religious groups. One uh, way he used his Christian subjects, for example, was to build alliances with the Franks against the Mamluks. And this is something we've seen before. It's a geography thing. Remember, the Crusaders, they're on the Mediterranean coast. They don't have much left at this point. The Mamluks are in the middle, Egypt and Syria, 
and the Mongols are on the other side. They've essentially taken over Iraq. And so when you have two enemies on either side of you, they're going to try to work together. And so the Mongols always tried to some success to build alliances with the Crusaders. And so one way to do this is leveraging the Christians in your territory as envoys, as diplomats, and so forth. But for the most part, the Mongol law, which is known as the Yasa, continued to be in place. So really, we, we should not think of this as like enlightened tolerance. I mean, Ghazan piled up lots of heads of whomever got in his way. It's just that promoting religion was not what they were about. This was not what the Mongols uh, were really into. So all of this, all of this background actually is going to come into play when we talk about his dealings with Ibn Taymiyyah and what will become Ibn Taymiyyah's doctrine of jihad. Okay, so that, uh, that background you kind of need. Okay, so back to the wars. Well, despite all the delays that had been brought on by the turmoil in the Ilkhanate, Ghazan would eventually get back to what his grandfather started, and that was the conquest of Syria. The Mongols had started out like a steamroller. They seemed to be plowing through everything. But first with the death of Genghis Khan and then all the internal turmoils and bickering, they never had been able to get back to the conquest of Syria. Well, Ghazan is going to pick that up. But by this time, the Mongols, they're definitely not what we think of as the giant horde that rushed out in the... Uh, mid-1200s. The, the Mongols have been weakened by division, and the Mamluks have gotten much stronger. And so Ghazan does successfully forge alliances with a number of Christian states, uh, primarily Georgia and Armenia, and he has uh, the Crusader armies uh, supporting him. So in the year 1299, he takes that key city of Aleppo in northern Syria and is able to lay siege to Damascus. His army drives the Mamluks all the way back to Gaza, which is on the border of Egypt. But by wintertime, he has to retreat back to Iraq, mostly to resupply his horses, and he leaves only 10,000 troops in Syria. So this is the situation we have. We've just had a Mongol invasion, but it has not successfully taken over Damascus. But most of the Mamluks have pulled out and gone to safer places, that being Egypt. Well, we said this episode was supposed to be about Ibn Taymiyyah. This is where he comes back into the story. Most of the Mamluk leaders have fled Syria, but Ibn Taymiyyah stays in Damascus and organizes resistance, the military resistance to the Mongols. This, more than anything else, makes him a hero to the local population. And they need some heroes at this time. They're in dire straits. Well, the Mamluks are having trouble dealing with Ghazan. And they realize that eventually he's going to come back to Damascus. And when he takes Damascus, he's eventually going to attack Egypt and he's going to keep going. So they're trying to appeal to this guy. Well, after all, he is a Muslim. 
Now this worked, if you remember, with Burke, the leader of the Golden Horde, because he was very devoutly Muslim, and when they appealed to his religious sense, uh, he actually fought against the Ilkhanate, and it was good for the Mamluks. But Ghazan is a different character. I mean, appealing to his sense of religious devotion doesn't get very far, but they try. And so you need somebody who's pretty gutsy, okay? If you're going to go up to the, the Mongol leader's camp and, you know, sort of try and preach to him and tell him why it's his religious duty uh, to stop fighting you, you need someone who's pretty gutsy. Well, you can guess who you're going to get. Is Ibn Taymiyyah is a guy who's not afraid of anybody, and he likes to preach and tell people what they're doing wrong. So... Uh, he's really the only one who speaks up. They send a delegation of religious leaders up to try and appeal to Ghazan, you know, try and convince him to stop. But the only one who really confronts him uh, is Ibn Taymiyyah, and we shouldn't be surprised. And in fact, his words have become quite famous. They were written down and spread, and this is part of his fame. So what he says to Ghazan is, quote, you claim that you are a Muslim, and you have with you muezzins, these are the people who do the call to prayer, muftis, imams, and sheikhs, but you invaded us and reached our country for what? Although your father and your grandfather, Hulagu, were non-believers, they did not attack us and they kept their promises. But you made a promise and broke your promise. End quote. And of course, he's referring to various treaties they made. Uh, but the key thing here is the beginning. You claim that you are Muslim. This is really going to be the most important part of Ibn Taymiyyah's legacy. For all the thousands of pages of legal writing he produces, this is what lasts today. That someone who claims to be a Muslim may lose the right to be treated as so because of their actions. And this is the thread we're going to see throughout the, the rest of this episode. Well, while most of the leaders had fled, Ibn Taymiyyah stayed in Damascus, and he rallied the populace. He gave sermons calling people to fight and telling them of the, the duty to fight jihad against the Mongols. Uh, he even pressed the Mamluk governor to keep fighting. And he actually participates in the battles. I mean, he, he goes out and he, he fights physically. Uh, they use him as an envoy. They send him to Cairo to get reinforcements to defend Damascus. And you can see why this would boost his standing, uh, you know, when the leaders have fled. Well, the Mongols eventually launch three separate campaigns against Damascus between the years 1300 and 1303. And Ibn Taymiyyah tries several times to appeal to Ghazan's religious sensibility. And it just doesn't work. I mean, unlike Burke, this is a guy, I mean, he wants to conquer. He wants to come in and take over Damascus. And I mean, he really doesn't care what religion you are. So in 1303, after, you know, finally giving up on this, Ibn Taymiyyah issues what will become his most important fatwa and his most enduring legacy. Well, in reality, scholars are divided on the significance of this. And depending on whom you listen to, it's either really important or really not. 
And this is the trick here is that Ibn Taymiyyah has a very small following in terms of his legal writing. The vast majority of stuff he writes, okay, which are extensive, I mean, as we see, I mean, he's writing about all sorts of violations. But this one fatwa becomes spread amongst the populace, and we can see why. They're in the middle of a war. So this gives him great popular appeal. So the real question that divides scholars is, I mean, do we talk about the vast uh, volumes of stuff he writes for his narrow little circle, or do you talk for, you know, the one thing that gives him his 15 minutes of fame? Okay. For the later generations of jihadists, including today, I mean, this one fatwa is basically the only thing that they know about him. Okay, so why is one fatwa, why is one opinion so important? Well, we have to remember the context. We have now a Mamluk-Mongol war going on, and both sides are technically Muslim. So the, you know, the great Mongol conquest and slaughter is over. Now we've seen a lot of Muslim versus Muslim wars so far. Mamluks, Ayyubids, Seljuks, Fatimids, Umayyads versus Abbasids, and so on. And we would consider these basically political struggles, which is what they are. And that's what most of the people living in the area at the time felt like. Uh, you know, we're way before the times of modern nationalism when you go out and fight and die for France or for Germany. Uh, if you're a farmer living around Damascus, whether your overlord is a Mamluk, a Seljuk, an Abbasid, or a Mongol, uh, by this point is not much of an issue. You know, the main thing is how they treat you. You know, what is the tax rate like? How secure is the area when they're around? How's the economy going? I mean, you don't, you don't really care. But if it's a war to defend Islam against a pagan threat, that's different. Now, in Islam, we have to distinguish between two kinds of obligations. And the term here is a fard. And if you see this written in English, the D will usually be capitalized. And this fard means something that's imposed or a duty. Now, there's a fard kifaya. Uh, kifaya means sufficient. Uh, and usually if someone says to you that to you, it means like enough, like stop it, kefaya, kefaya. But fard kefaya means a sufficient duty, which means somebody has to do it. Uh, as long as some person does it, then we're okay. An example of this would be like burying a dead person, right? Saying the, you know, doing the religious ceremonies and uh, correctly burying a dead person. Well, someone has to do that. You can't just leave them there obviously, but not everybody in the community has to come out and bury the same dead person. And there's a lot of these. The other, though, is fard al-ayn. And ayn, in this case, means specific or individual duty. This is something everybody has to do, like prayer is an example, giving alms, and so on. Everybody has to do this. Now, all the schools of Islamic law say that jihad becomes fard al-ayn, if the Muslim community is threatened, if Islam itself is threatened, uh, then jihad is not just a duty for some people, but it's everybody's duty. Meaning, put down your plow and hoe, take up your sword, everybody has to fight. Uh, and if we look specifically at the Hanbali school, which is Ibn Taymiyyah's, it becomes a fard al-ayn if infidels invade the land and an imam calls the people to it. So an example would be like the Crusades or the initial Mongol invasions. 
and we can see why. I mean, the fight between a Mamluk Muslim prince and a Mongol Muslim prince, that's generally a political struggle, uh, and it's not a duty on everyone. Okay, so this is a big difference, particularly when, you know, we're fighting the Mongols and the Mamluks have a tough time with them. And they're losing cities to them, so you need every weapon you can get. So, uh, when you come and say that every person has to fight against the Mongols, this really helps you mobilize. So, uh, one command in specific says that jihad is then mandatory, quote, for even women, slaves, and children, and they must march out even if their guardians and husbands forgive them, end quote. So this is a big thing. Everybody has to fight. Even the women and children have to fight. And even if their own families, their parents and their husbands forbid them to go fight, they still have to go. I mean, that's about as, as big a, a mobilization as you can get. So what they want is for Ibn Taymiyyah to proclaim uh, Fard al-Ain against Ghazan Khan. Now, again, the guy didn't have a really big legal following for all the stuff he writes about visiting tombs and so forth. And definitely the political rulers don't like him. But during the battle, he's the guy who's rallying the troops. He's the one who's staying. He's going out and fighting against the Mongols. So as often happens, the kind of guy you need in wartime is very different than the guy you need in peacetime. So he's the one they really want to issue this fatwa. Um, now, we spend all the time setting up this context and explaining it because this is very different from the way it's going to be interpreted in later generations and the context in which it's generally going to be applied throughout history. So in his famous ruling, Ibn Taymiyyah says that jihad against Ghazan Khan is not only permitted, but is mandatory for all Muslims. Uh, he gives that total mobilization. Every Muslim, not just in the Mamluk world, but everywhere, must go out and fight Ghazan Khan. Because why? He is, he is a threat to Islam itself. He's no different than Genghis Khan and Hulagu even though he does claim to have converted to Islam. Now, in defense, and scholars of Ibn Taymiyyah point this out, his actual argument is very detailed. He goes through a lot of different points, and he really lays it out and backs everything up by references to the scriptures, and he makes it clear why this is the legal case. But that's not what people remember. And that's not what gets quoted. Really, only a tiny part of his argument has caught on throughout the ages, and this is the only part that most people know. So Ibn, in one point, Ibn Taymiyyah notes that if you actually go to the Ilkhanet, if you go to the kingdom of Ghazan Khan, you find that their communities are still run according to the Mongol law, the Yasa. They're not running according to Islamic law. And we know how important Islamic law is in Islam because Islam was and has always been, up to this point, a state. It's always been part of a government. Okay, so this is where the historians start to differ. The ones who really study Ibn Taymiyyah uh, emphasize that this was one tiny little sub-point in a very complex argument. In fact, for the most part, they like to just skip over it completely and hardly mention it. 
so if you pick up a book on Ibn Taymiyyah expecting to uh, get an analysis of this particular point, uh, you may find it's not even mentioned. Uh, one example would be uh, if you look in the Encyclopedia of Islam, which is like a, a defining source. Uh, I mean, really, it's a very distinguished and very expensive multi-volume set compiled by the leading scholars uh, of the time. There's a three-page article on Ibn Taymiyyah. They never even mention this. Uh, and I get the point they're trying to say. I mean, he's a very prolific legal scholar who wrote a lot of really very refined uh, opinions on a lot of subjects. So they don't want to uh, focus on what was his 15 minutes of public fame. But as far as the rest of the world is concerned, if they know anything about him, this is the one thing they know. So it's, you know, uh, it's one of those things. It's like if your favorite classical pianist who plays all the masterworks of Beethoven, uh, you know, does a novelty record that makes it into the top 10, that's what most people are going to remember about him and not the wonderful stuff that, that you listen to. Well, anyway, let's get back to the effects of this. Eventually, the Mamluks do defeat the Mongols, and Ibn Taymiyyah even fights in the battle as a soldier. And you would think that they would appreciate all his efforts, but within a year, he's offended the ruling elites again, and he's back in jail. Okay, so why, why has his one ruling become so controversial? I mean, after all, look, we got the Mongols at the gate. We know how dangerous they are. We need to make a case that we need to go fight them. And so, you know... Uh, let's cut him some slack, all right? He rallied the troops. Uh, you know, if we think of some of the things that even uh, modern states have done, the things that the United States did during uh, World War II, like interning the Japanese, I mean, people do some pretty extreme stuff during wartime. So why does this um, one ruling last? Well, it's like everything else. People cut and paste what they want. They take the piece of this argument that they want and they apply it to very different context. So what they generally take from Ibn Taymiyyah's long detailed argument is a very brief summary that just because a leader claims to be a Muslim, if he isn't following Islamic law, then he's not a real one, and you have the obligation to fight against him. Now, in truth, Ibn Taymiyyah had a very wide view of what attacking or threatening Islam meant. Okay, In his definition, anyone who didn't apply all of the law was an enemy of Islam. But remember what he's talking about. He's talking about a Mongol... Uh, of course, the Mongols have this horrendous reputation for slaughter. They've destroyed Baghdad, and who seems to have made what looks like a sham conversion to Islam, uh, and he's not appealing to any peaceful, logical uh, appeals. He's you know, coming and conquering our territory, and therefore he says, look at this guy, look at the reality, look at the reality of his kingdom, it's not run according to Islam, they don't apply Islamic law, uh, don't let him fool you, he's not really a Muslim, we have to fight against him. This gets interpreted over the centuries as, basically, if you don't like the way a Muslim ruler is 
applying Islamic law, then you have a duty to kill them. So the leader of the jihadi group that killed the Egyptian president Anwar Sadat in 1981, that was Abdul Salam al-Farag, um, he based his doctrine on this ruling. Now this guy, uh, who was executed, he was an electrical engineering graduate. Uh, and I say electrical engineering graduate, he, di he didn't even have a job as an electrical engineer. That's one of the reasons he was very uh, disappointed with Egyptian society. He had very little religious training, had not shown much interest in religion, uh, but he gets kind of radicalized in the late 70s, and he adapts this idea in his book on jihad that becomes very influential among radicals, even though it's I mean, pretty much any mainstream Islamic scholars look at it and say, I mean, it's just really not, not based on any kind of actual knowledge of the law. So according to his explanation, President Sadat did not rule Egypt according to Islamic law. And in fact, the Egyptian constitution acknowledged Islamic law as a, quote, major source of its law, but it's not the only one. And in fact, I mean, we know this, that the, the modern state of Egypt is not ruled strictly according to the Sharia. Therefore, he was not a real Muslim, and jihad against him was mandatory and they, his group of a few people was going to carry this out by shooting him while he was watching a parade. So you can see how this doctrine gets distorted. I mean, we're talking about President uh, Sadat, who was clearly a, a devout Muslim in his own way. If you've ever seen uh, President Sadat and pictures of him, he, of course, has a very large callus on his forehead, which is from praying. Uh, he was known to be a, a devout, sincere Muslim. But he doesn't, in our opinion, in the opinion of Farag, he doesn't really apply Islamic law, therefore he's an infidel, he's not a real Muslim. Now Ibn Taymiyyah was writing about a guy, a Mongol Khan, and he's, he's not writing about someone who truly, genuinely considered himself to be a Muslim. But this is how it gets interpreted. Okay, and this is how the doctrine of Ibn Taymiyyah is uh, appropriated. And, you know, one of the simple, simplest ways to refute this is the fact that uh, Ibn Taymiyyah himself was usually at odds against the Muslim authorities in his own country, against the Mamluk rulers, definitely against the Mamluk governor of Syria. Uh, they locked him up. And he was very critical of their practices. He thought that they did not apply Islamic law correctly. He never calls for a jihad against the Mamluk Sultan or the governor of Syria, which, accordingly, if Farag was correct, he should have done. Right? And so we, we can see he's clearly taking this out of context. But um, basically, uh, most terrorist groups are going to take stuff out of uh, context. And so that becomes, unfortunately, at least his most influential legacy today. Now, 
Despite the fame that this one ruling on jihad has, uh, in his own day, the place where Ibn Taymiyyah was most influential was in his opinion on the sources of Islamic law. And this is one of the things that gets him in trouble. Now, most everyone would agree that the Quran is the first source of Islamic law, and then the Hadith for clarifying points which are not clear in the Quran. It's once we get beyond that, it gets a bit controversial. As far as the third source of Islamic law, Ibn Taymiyyah considered that the opinions of the companions of the Prophet here, we're talking about the first generation of Muslims, which are also known as the Salaf, uh, that this was definitive. Now, he differs because many other scholars and jurists, in fact, most of them accept the opinions of later jurists, but for Ibn Taymiyyah, it's really going back as early as you can, right to the first generations. People who were alive when the Prophet was alive, that is definitive. And of course, this word Salaf, referring to these early um, companions, becomes attached to the doctrine of this in what is known in our times as Salafism or Salafiyya. That's what the term comes from. Okay, so an example of this may be that Ibn Taymiyyah endorsed a ban on building churches in the year 1299. I'm talking about Christian churches. Now, this violated a treaty that had been in place since the Umayyad times that said that Christians had the right to build churches. I mean, this is part of the way that uh, Muslims and Christians got along within this empire. And we're talking about the Umayyad dynasty, the very first dynasty that lasted only the first century. Now, that's a long time going back, and so for most scholars, that was a still a valid treaty that had to be upheld. The key point for Ibn Taymiyyah was that the Umayyad period, this was 60 years after the death of Muhammad that this treaty was made. For him, the problem was not that this treaty was really old, which it was, I mean, it's almost 600 years uh, before his time, but the fact that it was too new that this was 60 years after Muhammad. So this idea of going back to the first Muslims and, and looking at what they did, this becomes known as Salafism. Now again, in fairness, he's using a very nuanced version of this. He's looking at very specific issues uh, and making some fairly nuanced readings. The way this gets applied in our world today is the idea of anyone who's trying to recreate an ideal utopian community of the first believers, which is not what Ibn Taymiyyah was doing. They become known as Salafists because the, the thing they have in common is you're looking back towards the first generation. Now, as we may imagine, in his strict Hanbali conservatism, Ibn Taymiyyah is going to be very harsh in his condemnation of Shiites. In fact, he considers the Shia to be worse infidels than the Christians and the Jews, of which he also has a very low opinion. Now this again is going to exacerbate tensions within the Mamluk Empire, because they have these different groups, but particularly with the Mongols. Uh, Ghazan himself was not Shia, but his successor uh, is eventually convinced to become Shiite. So 
again, it's one of these things, when they were fighting against him, because after Ghazan dies, they're going to fight against his successor, well, it's useful to use Ibn Taymiyyah's condemnation of the Shiites, because that's also condemnation of the Mongols at that time. But when that's over, now there's later problems when you want to have peace with the Shia in your own communities. Remember, it had not been that long ago that Shiites were ruling Egypt. Okay. Now, in terms of other people, now he seems, of course, to be rubbing wrong against everybody. Uh, he's also credited with being outright against Sufism. And, of course, Sufi uh, practice is very popular, particularly among the working classes and in the rural areas. The reality is he was, in fact, a Sufi himself. Uh, but he was very strict on Sufi and folk practices, which th there are quite a lot of. So uh, something as simple as valuing the spiritual experience of experiencing God, of union of God, of valuing that over following the law, to him is a big, big no-go. Following the law is the most important thing. But the biggest one that really rubs people the wrong way is this visitation of tombs. Uh, this was a very popular, it even, even today, it's a very popular practice. You can go to tombs, uh, particularly in rural Egypt, uh, and thousands of people will come out to visit respected figures and teachers. Uh, now, in the West, particularly among Western secular historians, they refer to these as saints. Talk about Muslim saints. Now, Muslims will be quick to insist they don't have saints the same way you have in Christianity. But this is part of the problem for Ibn Taymiyyah, because what these people are doing to him, it sounds a lot like what the Christians do, uh, which he uh, flat out condemns. He, in fact, condemns visiting the tomb of the Prophet in Medina, which is one of the most beloved parts of the Hajj experience. It's not actually an official part of the Hajj, but most people who go on the Hajj then also do a side trip after that to the tomb of the Prophet, uh, in Medina. To him, this is visiting tombs, which is what Christians do, and it's outright uh, unacceptable. So uh, this leads to big clashes against leading religious figures, uh, and he's eventually brought to trial for it many times. Now the big irony in this is after he dies, Ibn Taymiyyah's own grave becomes a major pilgrimage site for about 600 years. Okay, uh, but anyway, he's already rubbing against a lot of people the wrong way. Uh, and in, in reality, many of the religious leaders, and particularly the po political leaders of his day, I mean, they really want to silence this guy. They really want to lock him up because, I mean, you look at it, he's a stickler and he seems to be against most of the things that you like doing and the public likes doing. And so they really want to silence this guy. So more than anything else, they're looking for something to catch him on. They're looking for a technical point to get him on. It's not so much that the points they actually challenge him with are what really bug you. I mean, what bugs you is the fact that he's condemning these pilgrimages of thousands of people to tomb sites, which become, you know, a big economic sort of like a tourist thing. It's big for those villages that they go to. Uh, they like having these festivals, and this guy is saying you can't do it. In fact, he's condemning a lot of the stuff that, you know, is popular and makes money. But anyway, they've got to find an issue to catch him on. 
So the thing that they're going to catch him on is something you would not think would be such a big deal. I mean, one thing saying, you know, you, that you have to uh, fight jihad, I mean, you would think that would be the big deal. But uh, the thing that gets him is the charge of anthropomorphism. Now, this, of course, is the uh, giving of human characteristics to non-human things. For example, uh, Mickey Mouse is an anthropomorphic mouse. And in reality, he looks a lot more like a human being than he looks like any mouse, right? Donald Duck is an anthropomorphic uh, duck. I mean, really, I mean, drives a car and he wears clothes. He's got a lot more in common with human beings than he does with any duck you've seen. Uh, that's not what they're talking about in this case. But this has long been a big controversy in Islam, and we touched upon it many episodes ago, if you're a faithful listener, when we were talking about rationalism, particularly the Mu'tazilites and all of those folks. And so the implications of this are much bigger than what they seem, okay? because really they touch on the ability to reconcile Islam with science and logic. So why is this such a big controversy, and what are they after Ibn Taymiyyah for? Well, Islam, as we know, is vehemently, vehemently monotheistic. I mean, that is its defining characteristic. And it rejects anything that would divide or limit God, right? I mean, God, because he is omnipotent, omnipresent, cannot have parts, right? Like part of God is over here, part of God is over there, and, and so forth. Something like saying God sits on a throne. Well, that's a big problem because if God's sitting on a throne, like the throne is something separate from him, so it's like not him, right? He's on the throne. He isn't the throne. And so you can see that giving anthropomorphic qualities to God, saying God has a hand or a foot, you can see where this becomes a problem for strict monotheism because you're dividing God up into parts. So the foot must be different from the hand, meaning God is not equally and uniformly present and equally powerful in the same way in the foot and the hand. You can see all of these problems. Now, the reality, of course, is that, you know, most people don't have an issue with it. I mean, Christianity deals with the same thing, and they're usually able to write it off. Uh, the problem is that the Quran clearly does talk about God's body parts. It talks about God sitting, for example. Uh, it talks even specifically God's shin is mentioned. Now, if you remember, and this is way back, so you can be forgiven, uh, the Mu'tazilites, remember these real rationalists, first and foremost, they object to this idea, um, not from the religious side, but the logic side. They're saying, according to basic logic, God can't have individual body parts, right? This would... This would mean that somehow God is, again, not uniformly powerful in all of his different parts. Well, and because of this, uh, they stir a lot of controversy. There's a controversy between the literalists who say, look, the Quran says God has a hand. Obviously, God has multiple hands. And the Metazolites say, no, that's logically impossible. 
Well, for remember, for a number of years, the Mutazilites have the power and the literalists lose. But if you remember, uh, when we talked about the Asharites, who basically become mainstream Islamic theology, uh, this, and even to this day, this, is, this becomes the mainstream, they come in their solution, which is sort of a compromise, but makes sense and appeals to most people, is to say that, look, this is a metaphor. That yes, the Quran says that God has a hand, but that's because our human brains can't completely conceive of God. So this doesn't mean that God has a hand in a human sense, like he has actually the same bones and the same joints and nerves in it. That's not what that means. This is a way of, it's a term that God uses so that we can conceive of a particular idea, okay, because Again, God is way beyond our uh, comprehension. Now, this sounds like a good compromise, and this is the thing that most people would accept to this day. Uh, but some sticklers, and you know who's going to be a stickler in this episode, if you've been following, are going to have a problem with this very nice compromise. And one of the reasons why is because this sounds a lot like the kinds of things Christians say. You know, the idea of God having a begotten son, that heaven has streets of gold. And remember, this is one of the main objections. It's right in the Quran that God does not beget and is not begotten. God cannot have a begotten son. Well, the way most Christian theologians would, would argue this, and they do in many debates, is say, look, I mean, this, this is just a way, it's a metaphor that God uses to explain something that we can't understand. The fact that God is one, he's one God, but he has three, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We can't understand them. Obviously, a human being couldn't do this, but this is because our minds are limited. And, I mean, this is very much, if you go to a Christian seminary, even go to a Christian Bible study, this is what you'll be told. And so this is an area where uh, Islam has clearly said, no, they're wrong. This can't be. So if you're going to say the Christians are wrong in using that argument, doesn't it sound kind of like the same thing if we're going to use the same argument for God's throne? How does God have a throne that he can sit on? All right? and, and particularly, one of the things is uh, the reference that God is facing in a certain direction. If God is facing this way, that means he's not facing behind him, and so does he have less knowledge of what's behind it? Again, this is a way of saying that uh, it's, it's a way of explaining something that is way, well beyond our comprehension. Okay? That's the argument most people use, but the sticklers say, no, we can't do that. Well, you can guess where Ibn Taymiyyah is going to come down on this. He doesn't fudge anything. Okay, so he says that if the Quran says God has a throne, then he has a throne. It's a throne. It's a real throne, period. Okay, if it says he has a hand, then yes, he's got a hand. The hand is not a metaphor. It's literal. Okay, he doesn't make, he doesn't fudge anything. Well, he is sent to trial several times for this. Uh, and he is forced to publicly debate some major scholars. They even bring in a noted scholar from India to debate against him. Now, what we have to appreciate here is that there's an attempt at honest treatment. You know, the sultan's not just saying, hey, this, guy, this guy's a troublemaker, lock him up. 
No, no, they're they're giving him trials, uh, and they're bringing in debates. And the fact is, most of the time, he actually wins these trials. He goes in and makes his arguments. He backs them up, and I mean, his arguments are very nuanced. I've presented them as really really brief summaries. I mean, I'm sort of butchering his arguments, but when he explains it all, well, how can this be? He explains it in a very nuanced ways, and even the people who have put him on trial have to say, okay, yeah, he's, he's right. He's not, he's not being anthropomorphic, and they have to let him go, uh, but they keep bringing him to trial. Uh, eventually, he is locked up, and what happens is for the big trials in Cairo, which is the capital, he does pretty well. But in Damascus, uh, he runs against the, uh, the governor there, uh, and so he ends up spending most of his time in jail in Damascus. Now, Ibn Taymiyyah actually considers this a great blessing, uh, because being in jail allows him to focus on his writing. Now, every time he's put in jail, he is ordered not to issue any fatwas, but he always does. And his claim is that it is a violation of God's law if you have knowledge to not share it. And so he figures he has to share it. But again, he's still able to put out these uh, fatwas. So uh, even the fact that he's locked up for his opinions is a bad thing, but we do have to appreciate uh, the degree to which they're trying to be honest and have the, an honest legal system about this. I mean, it's not just like the a Mongol situation where they're going to cut his head off. Anyway, Ibn Taymiyyah dies at age 65 in prison. And it is said that the governor finally uh, cutting off his writing supplies is what killed him. When he got to the point where he wasn't able to write in prison, that's what did him in. Well, despite all the controversy about him, there is a huge turnout for his funeral. Now, some of these numbers have to be certainly exaggerated, just given the populations of the cities at the time. Uh, one report says that 250,000 men came out into the streets of Damascus. I mean, that's just unlikely that you could get that many people out into the streets of Damascus. Um, but again, there's a huge outpouring. And again, this divides historians. Some point out, which I mean, I don't know how they could quite know this and you know why they particularly care to make this point, that yeah, there was a huge crowd, but they were only there because of his role in fighting against the Mongols and leading the rebellion. They weren't there because of his uh, religious opinions, which I mean, kind of sounds like m sour grapes, but this is what some people are, even today, respected scholars really want to point out that this guy was a, a minor uh, sort of fringe person in Islamic doctrine. Well, in any case, whatever Ibn Taymiyyah's actual influence in his own day, uh, this man who wrote thousands of pages, who wrote volumes on pretty much every aspect of Islamic law, would be remembered after his time for a very, very narrow thread of his ideas. And in fact, he kind of falls into obscurity until the late 18th century, in when what starts something is called an Islamist revival or the Salafist movement. Uh, and this is where his ideas about jihad are resurrected, his ideas, his 
emphasis on the early generations, the Salafists, not so much what he derives from them, but the fact that we should try to imitate the early generations uh, becomes resurrected. And for most of the groups who quote Ibn Taymiyyah today, I mean, this is all that they take for him. Um, basically, that one fatwa about jihad uh, becomes by far the most famous influence that he has today, and we've given some examples of how it's certainly misquoted. In any case, this is the figure. So the claim that al-Ghazali and Ibn Taymiyyah are responsible for the so-called decline, the end of the Golden Age, does it hold up? Well, that's up to you to judge. You've seen some of the facts, you've seen the case, and you can make up your opinion. However, if Ibn Taymiyyah really is responsible for the decline of Islam, uh, it doesn't seem to decline right away. After the Mongol threat is basically checked, sort of another mini golden age, it's nothing like the, the great days, is going to emerge. And we're going to see in the 1300s uh, that Islam actually spreads and flourishes. So, uh, I mean, if he caused decline, it was a delayed decline. So that mini golden age, that age that follows, that's going to be our focus in the future. So we thank you for listening. We thank you for your very kind comments. We need those to stay on the air. We hope to see you again. Thank you for your kind attention. Shukran jazilan. Wa ma salama. <laughs>